You're listening to the National Secular Society podcast, hosted by Emma Park. Disestablishment of the Church of England has been an issue that the NSS has campaigned for since its foundation in the 19th century. Disestablishment would involve separating the church entirely from the state, including by removing the bishops from the House of Lords and removing the monarch's mandatory role as head of the Church of England. Every year, the NSS hosts a speaker to give the Bradlaugh Lecture in honour of the Society's founder, Charles Bradlaugh. This year, the topic was disestablishment, and the lecture was given online, of course, by Geoffrey Robertson, QC, a human rights barrister and head of Doughty Street Chambers. Robertson's title was The Ultimate Blasphemy, Disestablishing the Church of England. You can access the full lecture on the website. In this podcast, I'll be speaking to the NSS's Stephen Evans to reflect on Robertson's argument and its implications for the Church of England, the monarchy, and the rest of society in 21st century Britain. Stephen, first of all, how far do you think the NSS still keeps Bradlaugh's heritage alive today? Well, it's a very important legacy and we do uh, do our best to keep it alive. Bradlaugh is, without question, a really towering figure in British political history. And we're very proud of our association with him. Obviously, we named our annual lecture after him. And a few years ago, we worked with the Parliamentary Arts Committee to commission a bust of Bradlaugh that now sits in the lower waiting hall in the Palace of Westminster, which is just off Central Lobby, um, which is where the, the, the TV broadcasts all come from. And that was funded by our members. That can be seen uh, by whoever works in Parliament, whoever visits Parliament, and certainly when I meet with peers and members of Parliament, I do try and point this out to them. Geoffrey Robertson QC praised the NSS for keeping Charles Bradlaugh's memory alive. He outlined um, Bradlaugh's importance to the rule of law and democracy, um, in particular in getting the Oaths Act 1888 passed. This act enabled non-religious MPs, jurors and witnesses to be able to affirm rather than taking an oath on the Bible. Obviously, the Bradlaugh Lecture was held online this year, but in previous years, we've held it at Manchester Art Gallery. Uh, and in large part, that's because a few years ago now, we worked with the people there to restore and hang a magnificent portrait of Bradlaugh by Walter Sickert, uh, which is now on display in the gallery. So, you know, you can see we've done quite a lot, I think, in recent years to make sure Bradlaugh's contribution to Britain's political history isn't forgotten. And if listeners do want to learn more about that, we try to tell his story on our website. And one of our directors, Bob Forder, also uh, last year created an educational program to explain and try and draw attention to secularist history. And of course, Bradlaugh features heavily there. And he actually created a series of videos as well during the the first uh, COVID lockdown, which we've uploaded to YouTube. It's a really interesting story. And if listeners want to hear more about the story of Bradlaugh, then it's all out there. Great. Um, moving on to the Church of England specifically. Now, Robertson argued that the CFB was actually founded by a man who was, according to the historian Tracy Borman, a pathological monster, i.e. Henry VIII, um, who, as we all know, caused his whole country to break with the Catholic Church, purely so that he could marry Anne Boleyn. Now, if you want to disestablish a national institution, it seems to me only fair to look at the way it was established in the first place, because obviously that should be a matter of national pride, a result of some moral or intellectual movement 
that should be specially remembered 500 years later. Something in our history that we can cherish and applaud. Well, let's face it, the Church of England was established because of the lust of a pathological monster. That was how Henry VIII was described in the Times last week, as the evidence came to light of how he had planned to the last detail the grisly death of Anne Boleyn. The church and pro-church historians would have it believe, would have us believe, that he was motivated by a desire to leave a son to rule England. The problem with that, firstly, is that it endorses the view that women were so inferior they weren't up to snuff as rulers, but uh, he already had a perfectly good son by Bessie Blount, who was lady's maid to Queen Catherine. It was, uh, it was, he looked like Henry and was called the Duke of Richmond and was being groomed to take the throne if Henry failed to have a male heir. But Henry, as we know, fell in love with Anne. And as every schoolboy knows who's read his love letters, he wanted to slobber all over her little duckies. And, uh, in other words, to have sex with her, and no doubt, and did play him along for several years while Wolsey tried to obtain the Pope's support for a divorce on the grounds that he'd buried his deceased brother's wife and hadn't noticed it for 17 years. But uh, he was becoming desperate and doubtless held off, I think, until late, probably December, 1532. He married her secretly in January, 1533, and the baby was due in September. So uh, it was Thomas Cromwell who engineered the establishment of the Church of England by an act of parliament called uninspiringly, an act in restraint of appeals. That's, that's the Church of England's beginning, an act in restraint of appeals. In other words, it abolished the Pope as the final appeal court for English ecclesiastical matters, including divorce. Now, okay, there was a bit of Brexiteering uh, about this act by Cromwell. He played on nationalist sympathies, asserting in the statute that this realm of England is an empire, uh, an independent sovereign state, independent of the Pope, and that the king is supreme head of both the church and the state. That's where it all comes from, an act in restraint of appeals. Well, a few weeks later, in May, Cranmer dissolved his marriage with Catherine. Five days later, the secret marriage with Anne was announced, and she was crowned as queen. For those six months, of course, he'd been living bigamously with two wives. But... Uh, 
when the news reached Rome, the Pope, of course, excommunicated him and the Church of England was born. As Roger Scruton says, honestly, I quote, much of it following the curious logic of Henry's hormones. There are some interesting parallels there with Brexit. Robertson also argued that the Church of England today is compromised by its close associations with the government. For example, the power to appoint bishops still rests with the Prime Minister. As Robertson also noted, the present government hastily threatened the church with disestablishment when some of the bishops opposed the Internal Market Bill, the proposed Brexit legislation that breaks international law. But anyway, Stephen, what do you think? Does the government's reaction to the bishops um, who dared to oppose the Internal Market Bill prove that the Church of England is only tolerated so long as it does not dare to oppose the government? Um, <laughs> Well, yes, certainly the bishops have been uh, quite vocal on Brexit. Uh, I'm not sure the government quite threatened the church with disestablishment when its bishops opposed the uh, internal market bill a few weeks back. Um, But yes, their their status was certainly used by government ministers and MPs to um, put the bishops back in their box, shall we say. Um, And as I think, I, I, I think the established church does walk a fine line when it decides to intervene in political affairs of the day. And I think that's why some people within the church would actually rather be unshackled from the state to enable them to speak out a little bit more freely than they do perhaps right now. For most people now resident in England, the church is simply the empty Gothic building at the end of the road, visited for the first time, if at all when dead. But really, the Church of England can be better than this. And disestablishment may give it the independence to redress and reconsider and discover its true vocation of guardian of 13,000 churches, 43 cathedrals, places that should be open to all who need a place, a sanctuary, a place to think, to recover, to sort their minds out at a time when COVID-19 has turned their lives upside down. And of course, they should be free to speak out. Um, What I object to, and what the NSS objects to, is the privileged platform they enjoy to speak out from. So I'm obviously talking about their lawmaking role, for example, cluttering up the House of Lords with 26 seats. Um, The Church of England is a very political beast. So I think religious privilege does amount to political privilege too, which I don't think is healthy for democracy. And I don't see why their interests should be given any more or less weight than the interests of any other special interest group. Robertson made the provocative point that Rishi Sunak ought to consider disestablishing the C of E today in order to avail itself of the church's £9 billion endowment, or at least to relieve it of its charitable status and other financial privileges that are still funded by the taxpayer. Secularists, I suppose, can cudgel their brains thinking of how religions may repay the massive subsidies they receive from their tax-free charitable status. I've often thought, driving across England, dotted with landmarks of church spires, what a good idea it would be if 
to require churches to provide 24-hour public toilets beneath the steeple so we'd know where to go when caught short. But I have a better, bigger idea, inspired by the history I've been looking up, the established church. It's an idea for Rishi Sonic, faced like Henry VIII with a calamitous deficit. He should think of Cromwell, not Oliver, but Thomas, for whom the establishment of the Church of England provided the solution to the national debt. He dissolved the monasteries, and the government should pay for COVID by dissolving the tax breaks of the church. Indeed, of all churches, including would you believe the Church of Scientology and Moonies, which all receive them. Do you think that the C of E's great wealth should be redistributed and given back to the people? <laughs> well, if you look at how the church's riches were amassed, uh, there may be an argument for that. But actually, far from the church handing money over to the state, it's actually the state that often funnels money into the church. The, the, the state fully funds the running of Church of England schools, for example. But it, it also hands over millions of pounds to maintain churches, repairs that the church could absolutely afford to pay for it itself, but it would rather spend its wealth, and its considerable wealth, it has to be said, on evangelism. Um, so the public in many ways actually subsidizes the church's evangelism, which is outrageous. Um, and, you know, that a wealthy church taps the hard-pressed state for cash, when it already has significant wealth of its own, is, I, I think, ethically dubious. Um, so anyway, we're, we're more interested, I think, in ending the state funding of the church than uh, redistributing the church wealth. Maybe that's a less drastic step. I think so, somewhat less provocative. Robertson also gave a very moving and indeed chilling account of the way that the Church of England, like some other religious organizations, has had a history of covering up child abuse. And only a fortnight ago, of course, we have the independent inquiry into child abuse, which found uh, our national church was guilty of covering up child abuse in order to protect its reputation and its finances. These bishops, they are bishops, are given a privileged place in our legislature. Twenty. 26 privileged places as Lord Spiritual, with the Lord's Temporal crowding in the House of Lords. And uh, so would we miss them if the church was disestablished? I don't think so. We haven't missed the blasphemy law, and we wouldn't miss the... 26 privileged places in a disestablished church. The church has been disestablished in Wales back in 1920. The Church of Scotland isn't really established because it doesn't want any links with government, quite rightly. So the Church of England is unique. All religions in clinging to these links with the state. This is not just giving Caesar his due. 
but allowing Caesar to walk all over you, should he choose. And what church with any integrity would allow that to be run by the state and allow its bishops and archbishops to be appointed by the prime minister? Church of England uh, is really in the hands of the state, not that the state bothers very much to interfere. Mrs. Thatcher did a few times on choices of bishops, but they're a pretty subservient lot these days. And uh, although I must say that Rowan Williams, uh, who is a considerable mind, alone with the bishops, has said, disestablishment would give the church a certain integrity. How right he is, and how the church lacks integrity by its truckling to state control, even if that control is rarely used. Do you think that this um, is a completely separate issue from disestablishment? Or has being the established church given the Church of England more leverage or more reason to cover up abuse? Well, I I certainly don't think it's ideal for the state to be so closely aligned with an organisation that's been found uh, by the independent inquiry on child sex abuse to have covered up child sexual abuse, uh, to have given abusers a place to hide, and actually offered them much more in the way of support than they have done to the victims of child sex abuse. Certainly it undermines any argument that the church provides any sort of moral leadership to the country, but I think few people have really ever bought into that argument anyway. Um, And if you look at the moral issues of the day, assisted dying, same-sex marriage, uh, legal equality for LGBT people, the church clearly lags behind the public, largely, I think, because its moral compass is so often clouded by religious teachings or, or, or dogma. But if we do go back to that link that you suggested between uh, establishment and child abuse, I, I think the Church of England's status as the established church has in some ways contributed uh, to its desire to and maybe its ability to cover up abuse and leave victims completely bereft of justice. Just just go back and look at the case of Peter Bolt. So he was a he was a former bishop, uh, Bishop of Lewis in Gloucester, I think, who evaded justice for years, thanks largely to what I would describe as an establishment cover-up. So when he first faced allegations of sexual offences back in 1993, we had the likes of Prince Charles and other members of the establishment rallying behind him and backing his campaign to return to ministry unrestricted. So it was, it was effectively at the time let off with a caution. Um, It was only, I think, 20 or so years later that he was eventually charged and jailed for sexual offences against young men, uh, I think 18 young men in the end. And in the meantime, one of his victims, Neil Todd, who made the first allegation of abuse against Ball back in 93, attempted suicide three times and actually went on to kill himself back in 2012. And if you just look at that case, I think the deference towards church figures and the status of being established and the raw connections and the rest of it, I think it contributed to the problem of cover-ups within the Church of England. So uh, to go back to your question, I guess, no, it's not a completely separate issue from disestablishment. And certainly the Church's record 
should be taken into consideration, I think, when we consider whether we still want it to be the national church. Blasphemy was finally abolished in England and Wales through the 2008 Criminal Justice and Immigration Act under the Labour government. Is there a danger that it might sneak back into the law here under another name, as it may also be able to do in Scotland through the hate crime bill? Well, yes, we always need to be vigilant, I think, when it comes to protecting free speech. It's a fundamental freedom that I don't think we see enough people defending these days. Um, If we just look recently, many people's reaction to the terrorist atrocities in France was to almost blame free speech and cartoons that certain sections of the public find offensive. You know, it's sort of we saw this sort of uh, victim blaming as if anyone who defends the important civil liberties of free speech, uh, tolerance, uh, freedom of religion even, uh, has it coming. And this, this sort of fanciful and dangerous idea that anything for a quiet life, but of course, given into fundamentalist demands to respect their religion never leads to anything like a quiet life. It just leads to ever more unrealistic, uh, unreasonable demands. And I think there is an element of that in Scotland's hate crime bill, that people should have their feelings protected in some way. But, of course, the good thing about Scotland's hate crime bill is that it will be the bill that abolishes the offence of blasphemy if it goes through. But certainly other aspects of the bill will, I suppose, effectively reintroduce a sort of blasphemy law by bringing in these new controversial, very vague stirring up of hatred offences, which could potentially, at least, criminalise speech about religion that people find insulting, offensive or abusive, which you know, is, is itself uh, a very subjective term. So certainly the law in England and Wales at the moment explicitly protects expressions of dislike, uh, antipathy, uh, ridicule and abuse of religious ideas. And so uh, in Scotland, we're campaigning to ensure that the Scottish bill does that too. Otherwise, yes, I think free speech around religion will certainly be chilled and in some cases criminalised. So in other words, um, it will be counterproductive. Well, that's the thing about trying to silence ideas that you disagree with. It is usually counterproductive and it doesn't do anything to aid social cohesion. So however well-intentioned this bill is, I do ultimately think it's going to be counterproductive. I made quite a good living out of advising as an expert on blasphemy. I was hired by the British Board of Film Censors for an opinion on whether the life of Brian was blasphemous and they should stop it. I said it wasn't, because, of course, Brian was not the Messiah. He was a very naughty boy. And then I was retained to to advise on the Hollywood movie The Last Temptation of Christ, uh, after the gay news trial judge, a dreadful fellow called King Hamilton, had written to the Times. He hadn't seen the film, of course, but he demanded that it be prosecuted because he'd heard that it was scurrilous. I did. I saw it, I didn't find it. I, I found the only scurrilous thing about it was that Christ and his disciples were all played by Americans. Well, Judas and the devil and all the baddies spoke with English accents. But The end of blasphemy came as a result of the Ayatollah Khomeini, who pronounced in 1988 a fatwa on Salman Rushdie for writing the satanic verses. Salman had to go into hiding. 
and a group of Muslim barristers had the bright idea of trying to flush him out by serving a summons for both blasphemy and sedition. They relied on Lord Scarman's unwise words about blasphemy being able to extend to all religions. Magistrate threw the case out on the basis you could only blaspheme against the Anglican Church. So they took their forensic jihad to the High Court. Now, the argument that Geoffrey Robertson himself considered the most important in favour of um, disestablishing the Church of England concerns its relationship with the monarchy. This is particularly, particularly important now because of the probability that Prince Charles may become king or is going to become king in the not, not too distant future. Now, I should say at this point that under the Treason Act 1351, as mentioned by Geoffrey Robertson, treason includes, quote, when a man doth com- compass or imagine the death of our Lord the King, unquote. So following Robertson's lead, in order to avoid any charge of treason and possible execution, let's just consider a situation in which Her Majesty remains in the best of health, but decides to abdicate in Charles's favour. If that happens and he becomes king, he will have to swear a coronation oath. In its traditional format, the coronation oath will require him to defend the rights and privileges of the Church of England, but not, um, as Robertson argued, to serve the people as a whole, regardless of their beliefs or lack of them. Then, of course, there's the phenomenon that John Morton and I encountered when waiting to argue the gay news blasphemy case, the daily prayers from the Book of Common Prayer in the Bible said by bishops every day on a daily rotor. Why is it thought that a reading from the Apostle will inspire MPs to argue about Brexit? (laughs) Not only is it a waste of parliamentary time and a snub to those with no Anglican faith, or no faith at all, and it's incompatible with the democratic ideal of separation of church and state, but it's bloody annoying because for an MP to reserve a seat at Prime Minister's question time, he or she has to put down a green card promising, indicating that they'll attend prayers at the start of the day. It forces MPs to listen to prayers if they want to ask questions of the Prime Minister. Its defenders say it's there to promote morality in Parliament, although that's an argument that's difficult to sustain. In the recent years, the Bishop's Block, as I would call it, has rejected a number of legislative initiatives, mostly to do with cutting down on church privileges. They're wholly unrepresentative, even of their own flock, being mainly male and white and middle class. And far from promoting morality, they've been hostile to women's rights. The first they held out against women bishops until 2015. They've been unanimously opposing same-sex marriage and 
the decriminalization of assisted suicide. So it's no answer, though too often it's the answer that is given, that we should create places for leaders of other religions, far less progressive even than our own bishops. I don't want to get into the vexed question of House of Lords reform, but surely its members should be elected, appointed on their own merits, rather than as placemen of an official church. Stephen, what in your view is likely to happen when Charles is crowned? Is there enough political will to change the coronation oath and make it more appropriate to 21st century Britain? Well, I imagine there will be some changes, certainly to the ceremony. Um, I think that will be a much, much more scaled down affair than the coronation of 53. Uh, Certainly there will be fewer people there, um, not so much in the way of street processions and the rest of it. But as for the oath itself, well, I'm not I'm not so sure. As I understand it, there's a group of grandees working at the moment under the name of uh, the code name Operation Golden Orb, uh, which is apparently responsible for planning Charles's coronation. But I, I certainly don't have any insight into their deliberations at the moment. Of course, the coronation usually takes place several months after the death of the previous monarch uh, or let's say when they assume the role, uh, let's say through abdica- abdication. Um, so there will be some time for a national debate as to what should happen. Um, but in fact, I, I don't think you even need to hold a coronation. I think most other European monarchies have abandoned coronations in favour of inauguration or enthronement ceremonies, which could, of course, take place in the more secular Westminster Hall rather than Westminster Abbey. But if there is to be a coronation, I think it will be very interesting to see how it's received because one of the most significant changes since the Queen was crowned back in 1953 is this sharp decline in adherence to Christianity and the, the you know, the, the, the broader secularisation that's happened in the UK, because the religious landscape of Britain is very different uh, to the Britain of 1953. And I imagine that the coronation will feel quite alien to much of the population who don't go to church because it is a very Anglican ceremony. Um, Certainly if it follows previous ceremonies, as you say, King Charles will be crowned and anointed by the Archbishop of Canterbury in a big church. Uh, Charles will take the Ascension Oath in which he swears to maintain and preserve the settlement of the Church of England. So basically promising to maintain their privileges. And um, it, 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 I think it's going to look a little bit strange. The UK is the only democracy to have such an explicitly Christian ceremony for its head of state. Um, it'll, it'll certainly be more multi-faith. We'll have the usual array of faith leaders and belief leaders there. But nevertheless, all of the religious rituals will probably, I imagine, be quite jarring and quite alienating to a British public that really isn't interested in church services, uh, largely isn't Christian, uh, predominantly isn't religious. And I think it will probably highlight a real disconnect between the monarchy and the British public. Robertson suggested that this difficulty with the coronation and and the coronation oath in particular um, raises the more fundamental question of whether it is time to disestablish not only the church, but the monarchy. He mentioned James I's advice to his son, who would go on to be Charles I. Now, James I said, no bishop, no king. Do some of the criticisms of the Church of England um, apply, in your view, equally to the British monarchy? What would be left of the monarchy without the church? 
Well, yes, I think the fate of the monarchy may well be tied up with the fate of the church. They are arguably all part and parcel of the same thing. The monarchy is a, the monarchy is a, a sort of quasi-religious institution. And so I think the next coronation, as I was saying, will, will be the beginning of the end, possibly, for the monarchy. Popularity of the monarchy is very much tied up with the popularity of the Queen, but no future monarch can expect that level of support, certainly not King Charles. And without the Queen, I think the whole thing does start to look a little more precarious. Of course, at the NSS, we don't actively campaign for abolition of the monarchy. Our members, quite reasonably, I think, may hold varying positions on that question. But it's certainly hard to envisage a monarchy surviving under a secular state where religious privilege is removed. And if the reforms were brought forward to disestablish the church, I think the question of the monarchy would almost certainly need to be addressed too. Um, all I would say there's, is that if we are to retain a monarch or any head of state, certainly that role should be entirely secular. Any future monarch or any future head of state should be free to follow any personal faith or none that they wish. And it certainly shouldn't be their role to defend the interests of the Protestant Christian faith. Just one final question. Robertson suggested that the impetus to disestablish would come not from Parliament, but it would be more likely to come from the Church of England itself. Now, neither the Tories nor Labour have disestablishment on their manifesto, although I believe the Lib Dems do. Do you think it's likely that the Church of England will disestablish itself anytime soon? Well, it's fair to say that disestablishment isn't particularly high up the political agenda right now. Uh, but we are in a situation where only a small fraction of the population are affiliated to the church. So it's certainly incongruous, the current settlement that we have. And not very helpful either, I don't think, to foster in any sort of inclusive national identity. So I think separating church and state would be a really positive step towards making Britain look and feel uh, like a more egalitarian and equal state where all of us, all citizens, regardless of our religion or belief or race, can uh, feel like equal citizens. So I think the state church gets in the way of that. So I think there's something very positive to be said about disestablishment. But coming back to your question, which is a good one about the church's attitude to disestablishment, I don't think disestablishment should be seen as something to be done to the church, but something that the church could actually be a willing partner in. It's interesting to see the Church of Ireland at the moment currently celebrating uh, 150 years of disestablishment. And they very much see it as a period of liberation. Uh, they're framing it very much as a positive, as a independence from the state that gave them the freedom to shape their future. When they were disestablished, I mean, Ireland was sort of technically part of the British Empire then. So perhaps it was, you know, part of their sort of process of liberating themselves from Britain, British rule. There was definitely a, um, a different set of circumstances that led up to disestablishment, for sure, in Ireland, as there was in Wales. But if we look back, I mean, right in the Times back in 18, uh, sorry, 1989, the religious commentator Clifford Longley said, any Christian church that still needs official state privilege for support has chosen to manacle itself to a spiritual corpse. In their heart, everyone knows it, but no one will admit it. Now, Clifford Longley was a Roman Catholic, but I think this view does exist too within the Church of England. Certainly Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, he once argued that, I think he said, there was a certain integrity to a church that's free from the state. And various Anglican theologians make that same argument too. So that school of thought that disestablishment could be seen as liberation and freedom, I think that very much exists within the Church of England. 
But at the same time, of course, those who benefit from religious establishment will instinctively, I suppose, cling to it, not least the bishops whose seats in the House of Lords give them considerable political lobbying power and prestige. But, you know, we look at the current Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, he's he's sort of hedging his bets by saying that disestablishment wouldn't be a disaster, but he did say the removal of privileges should be a decision for Parliament and people. And I think that's probably right. Ultimately, the state could act unilaterally and disestablish the church. But, you know, we all know the way these things work and, and disestablishment when it happens. And I think it will happen. But when it happens, I think it probably will need the church to acquiesce. But as I say, it's the right thing to do. I think it would better reflect who we are as a, as a nation. Uh, so, yes, it's something that should happen. And uh, certainly a church that very few British citizens have any relationship with shouldn't stand in the way in that because it's right as a matter of democratic principle that no religion should be favoured over and above any other religion or belief. And I think eventually the church will come round to that idea too. Stephen Evans, thank you very much. Thank you. This episode was produced by the National Secular Society, all rights reserved. The views expressed by contributors do not necessarily represent those of the NSS. You can access the show notes and subscriber information for this and all our episodes at secularism.org.uk forward slash podcast. For feedback, comments and suggestions, please email podcast at secularism.org.uk. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a positive review wherever you can. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us next time.